This podcast is brought to you by EverythingVoluntary.com. You can receive all new content offered by EverythingVoluntary.com in your email inbox every single weekday for free. Visit Digest.EverythingVoluntary.com to subscribe. Um, I, I'll just begin before the slides come up, and I want to thank everybody who was responsible for bringing me here. It's been a really nice visit. I've never been to Columbia before. The weather's awesome. It's really nice. <laughs> really nice. Uh, but I've, I've really enjoyed my stay. I have a number of colleagues at this university, including Ken and others that I've, you know, whose work I've followed for a long time, so it's really an honor for me to be here speaking to all of you. So thank you very much. Um, I'm going to talk a bit, as Ken said today, about self-determination theory, which is the theoretical tradition I've been working in, and particularly about the concept of autonomy and uh, the controversies that exist about its universality versus cultural specificity. Um, I'm going to present, uh, hopefully, a lot of work within the hour uh, that's a smattering of work from across the theory showing some things about autonomy. But the first thing I want to say is I never work alone. I'm not that good at research, so I need help all the time. And so I have lots of collaborators. And I mention here just a few of the collaborators who've been involved in some of the work that I'll be mentioning today. One of the beautiful things about working in SDT is it's really a worldwide community of researchers. There's always a lot of opportunities for collaborations. And um, I've had the privilege of great students over time and uh, great postdocs over time. Um, and uh, there's been a lot of inspiration from other people. So I don't want to take credit for the things I talk about. I just want to talk about those things that have been done within the theoretical framework. Um, and as Ken mentioned, we have our next international conference, I think, uh, already. Uh, it looks like there's going to be about 800 to 1,000 people at the BC conference. So it's, it's a nice place to come. If you don't want to hear any papers, it's a cool island anyway. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Um, Self-determination theory has grown over a long period of time. I'm getting older and older, so when I started uh, uh, 30 years ago with Ed DC, we were really focused on a single phenomenon, which was the concept of intrinsic motivation, which I'll talk about today. But intrinsic motivation is the motivation we have when we do something just because it's interesting to us. It, it has its own inherent enjoyment. And uh, we saw that a lot of the conditions that promoted intrinsic motivation also promoted human wellness. And so we went from studies of intrinsic motivation to also studying human well-being. I'd also say as a theory of motivation, uh, I think all of you realize that most of our lives is not spent doing things that are intrinsically motivated. Much of our lives is doing things that we do for instrumental reasons. And so we developed a theory of, uh, of instrumental motivation that's a little bit different from the prior theories on that topic. And so the core of our work is really about intrinsic, extrinsic, and, uh, and uh, well-being. Uh, but that's led us to a lot of other issues. How much of this stuff is universal versus culturally specific or gender specific? Uh, we've looked at people's life goals and their aspirations. So this is really with work, especially with Tim Kasser, in which we show that different life goals people have are more or less conducive to well-being. And we have some explanations as to why. A lot of work on vitality. Most recently, I've been doing a lot of work on mindfulness and how mindfulness supports the process of human autonomy. Um, and unfortunately, we have a lot of basic research areas, and I'm not going to be able to talk about them all today. So I'm just going to hit on a few, and I pretty much uh, put the red on the ones that I thought I might be able to touch on during today's talk. And as Ken pointed out, uh, SDT has a lot of application. I'm a clinical psychologist. That's my training. I was the director of clinical training for many years at Rochester. 
And uh, for me, the purpose of doing psychology is to make the world better. It's also to understand basic science, but if it doesn't have any practical value, why do it? Uh, there's other things to do if we weren't trying to make the world better. And so to me, one of the most important things about SDT is it's highly applicable to improving our atmospheres in school classrooms and clinics and workplaces and uh, health, uh, health areas and other domains. And I hope to touch on some of that today. The topic I wanted to talk about today is, is autonomy and its universality, and it relates to uh, maybe a more fundamental topic within SDT, which is what is it that leads people to flourish? What helps us to thrive and be uh, the best that we can be in life? And there's been a lot of philosophical and psychological theories about this topic before, but we start with a fundamental assumption that it's in our very nature to flourish. We were evolved, we were built to flourish. That's how our psyches, how our organisms are arranged. And so, you know, in the same way that we were built to grow from small to large, we're also built to mature psychologically. And the only thing I want to argue with that is just like physical growth, psychological growth and maturity and integration doesn't happen automatically. It requires certain nutriments. And so the focus of SCT has really been on what are those social factors that support people's flourishing and integration versus what are those things that disrupt it over time. And we uh, early on developed a, a concept that we call basic psychological needs, trying to find those central ingredients that are there for flourishing across people, across ages, across cultures, across different domains of activity. And so when we think about the term need, we're thinking, what, what are the things that are essential for an organism's integrity, for its wellness, for its growth to occur in an optimal way. And things that would frustrate those, need, those uh, factors would be need frustrators. And I say that that's the way we define needs, but you know, needs get used in a lot of different ways. Sometimes people would say things like, uh, you know, I need uh, another Mercedes Benz, or I need a third vacation home, or I need, you know. When we hear the word need used in that way, which we use a lot in our culture, we know that we are using it to mean a strong preference. And the way I'm using the term need has nothing to do with preference. It has to do with an essential. Whether you get it or don't get it will matter on the functional outcomes that occur, and that will happen even if you don't value it. So I'm going to argue today that even in a culture that doesn't value autonomy or in a culture that doesn't value relatedness, not having those things will cost people functionally within those cultures independently of their conscious valuing it. Another implication of our idea that these are uh, basic psychological needs is that we also think that they're not learned or acquired. Again, it's not a culturally specific kind of thing. It's part of our evolved nature so that uh, they, are, uh, they, they will harm you if they're not met and they will... Uh, support your thriving when they are. And, uh, and you don't even necessarily need to consciously value these things. In fact, most of the time, none of us are thinking about autonomy as a mental construct, but if we don't have it, there are functional costs to that. So our theory is kind of, the bro in the most broad sweeping way, uh, looks something like this. There's many nuances to it, but the broad theory is that people will have their highest degree of volition or highest quality motivation and their most wellness under conditions where they can experience autonomy, where they can experience competence, and where they can experience relatedness to others. I want to spend just a minute unpacking these uh, before getting to some demonstrations of why these are important. Uh, for, I want to start with competence because there's no theory of motivation and wellness in psychology that doesn't emphasize the concept of competence. Uh, everybody in all of psychology probably agrees that we need to feel efficacy and uh, uh, control in order to be thriving people. 
So it's not the most controversial of the needs that we might, uh, might take a look at. The second need is relatedness, which is we argue that for people to have high-quality motivation and volition in, a, in any setting, they really need to feel supported and belonging to the group that's around them. Uh, feeling rejected or ostracized or otherwise excluded interferes with motivation and with well-being in pretty fundamental ways. So we see this as an essential uh, element in wellness and thriving. And the third issue, which is probably the most controversial and the one I'll spend the most time on today, is the issue of autonomy. And we get our concept of autonomy from many deep philosophical traditions. If you look at the analytical tradition of Harry Frankfurt, Gerald Dworkin, and later uh, Marilyn Friedman and others, this is really a definition of autonomy, which says autonomy is about endorsing the thing that you do. If you're acting with autonomy, you say, I agree with what I'm doing. I did it willingly. I do it volitionally. I stand behind what I did. And... For people to, the opposite of autonomy would be heteronomy. It's when I'm saying that the things I'm doing are being forced on me, pushed on me, or in some other way uh, brought about by alien forces within me. So whenever I concur with my own behavior, we would call this autonomy. And whenever I'm doing something that uh, I feel like I have to do, but I don't necessarily concur with it, this would be heteronomy. And so I want to say a couple of things because it's really important to this discussion about the ideology of autonomy, about what autonomy is not, at least as the way it's philosophically defined or defined within our work. Autonomy for us is not independence. You know, independence, the way we define independence is that you rely on others for goods or for help or for guidance. So when a child is dependent, they rely on their parents for goods. Um, the opposite of dependence is independence when you do things on your own and you don't rely on others. In our theory, you can be autonomously dependent when you willingly turn yourself over for help or guidance from somebody else. When I go to my physician and I say to her, I'm sick, would you heal me? I'm being volitionally or autonomously dependent in that moment. When I turn to my spouse for help or aid on most occasions, I'm being autonomous in that. There might be other occasions when I'd be autonomously independent when I say to others, no, I want to do this on my own, or I don't want any help with this. I'd like to do this uh, w without your aid. That would be being autonomously independent. Uh, we could be autonomously interdependent when we value the interdependencies that we share and uh, embrace those things. But we can also uh, be heteronomously independent when we're forced into relations of dependency on others. These are really important distinctions because, for instance, in adolescence, some early psychoanalytic theory was thought that the progress in, in development was to move towards independence from parents. But we show that that's not the case. Actually, the kids who most rapidly move toward independence from parents are the least healthy of our adolescents, and they lack autonomy because they're very susceptible to conformity from peers. Even if we look at another developmental epic, if we look at old age, which is uh, you know, my own age group, when we're, as we're moving towards increasing dependence, needing to get help from other people, the issue is, are we going to be in atmospheres where we can willingly depend on those people rather than uh, feel like it's forced upon them? This makes a great deal of difference for the mental health of older people. So I just can't say enough how important this is. And it relates to the cultural issue that we'll talk about today because some people have argued that autonomy is a Western value. But we argue that you can be autonomously individualistic, but you can also be autonomously collectivistic. If you really support the idea of the group being more important than the self, then you are endorsing the values of collectivism. And if you live those, you are being autonomous in your collectivism. And we actually find that it's easier for people to be autonomously collectivistic than autonomously individualistic, because as it turns out, collectivism satisfies more of our basic psychological needs typically 
than to individualistic arrangements, and so typically it's easier to internalize. But my point being that there's no antipathy between autonomy and collectivism. On the contrary, if you have collectivism, you want people willingly embracing it. I worked for seven years in Bulgaria, which was a collective arrangement that was not, for most people, autonomous. In fact, it was coerced on many of those people that they were in a collectivistic arrangement that they didn't endorse, and the outcome of that was not good. But there are collectivistic cultures where people really support that, and that turns out to be a good thing. And finally, autonomy doesn't require an absence of external norms or inputs or demands. Even demands can be autonomously followed if you think the demands are legitimate. If we were out driving here today and there was a police person on the street who said, stop, you know, there's an accident up ahead, I would willingly, autonomously follow their command because I believe in the legitimacy of traffic laws. When I was 17, maybe not so much. So that has to do with maturity, well, at least with internalization and hopefully integration of what's going on around us. So we started our work on autonomy and its importance in human nature with this phenomenon, which we call intrinsic motivation. And we didn't coin the term intrinsic motivation. It was really coined by primate, primatologists. I think Harry Harlow was the first person to use the word intrinsic motivation, describing the curious exploratory behavior of the primates in his laboratory and how when they were given rewards for their curiosity, they became less curious. So he was really the first person to find such undermining effects of rewards. But intrinsic motivation refers to doing something because there's inherent satisfaction in the activity itself. So, for instance, when most of us play sports, we do it because we find the sport enjoyable, or if we just go for a walk, it's because we find the walk enjoyable. We're not doing it because we'll get rewards or we'll get some other outcome separable from it. It's the activity itself that we find rewarding. This is a really important phenomenon because it's a, lot, it's a big part of human growth. Children are highly intrinsically motivated, and we see this in their play. As they're playing, they're doing it they're playing just because it's fun, like this kid in the sandbox up here on the top. He's, he's enjoying the sand. It happens that while he's doing that, his brain is developing. He's learning more motor coordination. There are more synapses that are connecting. There's a lot of interesting neuropsychological development that's being supported by his play activity, but he's not doing it for that reason. His proximal motivation is that it's fun. And if we go up to him and say, hey, that playing in the sand is good for your brain, he'll probably become less interested rather than more. And certainly if we reward him for doing this, he'll like the reward, but he may start playing in the sand less until he sees that we're hanging around with rewards for him. The importance of intrinsic motivation is most of our learning in life comes through intrinsic motivation, not because people in classrooms have made us do it or not because there's been some immediate reward. We learn all the time when we read the newspaper in the morning, when we talk to other people. We're always learning. We're learning because we find it enjoyable inherently, and it's such an important part of our evolved nature that we wonder what supports this and what alternatively can undermine it. And uh, that's really... Uh, I, would, I do want to say, too, across the lifespan, intrinsic motivation is important. It's not just important in the early years of brain development and curiosity, but all the way through the lifespan, intrinsic motivation is important to our revitalization, to our continued growth and interest in the environment around us, and so, therefore, worth supporting at all levels. So in our early work on intrinsic motivation, we developed a theory called cognitive evaluation theory that here is just, again, looks like the earlier graph. We argued that Intrinsic motivation would likely happen in an atmosphere where you could feel secure and attached to the people who are around you. Uh, that is a, doesn't necessarily have to be a proximal factor, but if you're anxious about your belongingness, you're going to be less available for curiosity and exploration. And uh, attachment theory has the same hypothesis. 
We also argued that you'd be intrinsically motivated for things that, where you could feel efficacy or get positive feedback. And uh, so, you know, again, if something is uh, an activity in which you can feel effective at it, you're going to find it more enjoyable, and that's going to support your intrinsic motivation. And then finally, we argued that anything in the environment that supports the sense that this activity is coming from you or endorsed by you will support your intrinsic motivation. And any factor in the environment that leads you to believe that your behavior is being caused by an external agent will undermine your intrinsic motivation. So that's our early theory. And then we did a lot of experiments to kind of support that. And I'm not going to run across a lot of these experiments. I'll just give you a couple of examples. We might bring people into a laboratory setting, and we would pre-test an activity so that it would be a really, really interesting activity, like a hidden figures activity or a spatial puzzle. Or Ken, what have you used in the lab? Any particular? Art. Art, artwork. Anything that people would find, on average, to be highly interesting. Then we put them in one condition where we might... uh, uh, give them pressure toward a particular outcome. We say we're going to give you this activity, but we need you to, to attain a score of X on this. X would be something quite easy for people to attain, but it's the very fact of an external agent saying, here's how well you should perform, that we say shifts the locus of causality away from uh, I'm doing this because I want to, to I'm doing it because they want me to do something here. So that shift, we would argue, would undermine intrinsic motivation, whereas in absence of that kind of pressure, would support intrinsic motivation for an already interesting activity. How would we know that? Well, we have people do the activity under these two conditions, and then we say the experiment's over and done, uh, but you know, I need to go collect some papers, or we make up some excuse why we need to leave the laboratory setting. We say, well, you can stay here for the next uh, 10 minutes, or whatever the particular period would be. And then during that time, when people think they're not being watched, when nobody knows what they're up to, we would see whether they return to the target activity. Um, actually, before we left the room, we would say, you can continue to do more of this activity, or you can do the other things that are in the room. Just stay here until we come back. And we would look at the amount of time people spent on the activity that was the target of these manipulations. And if people persisted on that activity during this free choice period, we would say they were more intrinsically motivated. And that's kind of the behavioral measure of intrinsic motivation in these studies. We also take subjective measures as well, but behavioral measures are the gold standard here. What we found is that when you put people in conditions where they're doing a task and you give them choice over their goal or over their strategy, they tend to be highly intrinsically motivated subsequently. When you put them in a situation where you tell them what their strategy should be or you give them the goal or you assign it or impose it, then they become less interested in the activity subsequently as shown by their absence of persistence behavior during free choice. Similarly, and and now I'm going to get to the issue of rewards, but in uh, Ed DC, my colleague's early studies, he was one of the first people to show in humans that uh, when you reward humans for an intrinsically motivated activity, uh, they actually become less intrinsically motivated for the same activity subsequently, which I'll explain in a minute. Uh, But there was a, a number of these experiments that went on that really showed that things that supported autonomy from our theoretical point of view enhanced it or, or maintained intrinsic motivation. Things that would be antithetical to autonomy would undermine intrinsic motivation. Similarly, we do experiments with competence issues when you give people optimal, optimal challenges where they can get a lot of positive efficacy feedback. They're more intrinsically motivated. When you give them difficult things where they have a lot of negative or failure feedback, they undermines their interest and their joy in doing the activity, as we all can pretty intuitively understand. And even interestingly, in experimental settings where uh, the participant comes in and the interactions are cold or there's a lack of positive involvement, people are less intrinsically motivated in that atmosphere, independent of other things going on with the task itself. 
suggesting that a social atmosphere that's not very uh, receptive undermines people's interest in the environment around them. So we tested all of these factors in uh, these ways. And I just want to get to the reward issue because it's been kind of a controversial issue for self-determination theory. Uh, you know, as I said before, the reason that rewards would undermine intrinsic motivation is most of the time we're using rewards to control other people. So if I say, you know, I, I have this money here. If you'll clean my apartment for me, I'll give you this money. The reason I'm giving you the money is because I want you to do a specific behavior. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. Of course, it just means that you're doing the behavior because I'm giving you the money. So there's an external perceived locus of causality for why you're engaged in the activity. So for intrinsically motivated activities, when you reward somebody for doing something they were already interested in, you're shifting their reason for doing the activity away from the inherent interest now over to your reward structure. And as long as you've got a lot of rewards, you can keep people acting. But the trouble is, is that we oftentimes don't have enough rewards to keep this up over time, uh, and interest is lost. And you can see here that our theory predicts that tangible rewards, and particularly if they're expected, will undermine intrinsic motivation. Here you see a moderate D of minus 36, whereas unexpected rewards don't feel controlling to people, so they don't undermine. If you, weren't, if you didn't give me an if-then reward structure, then I wasn't being controlled by it, so it can't undermine my intrinsic motivation. And similarly, uh, what behaviorists were calling verbal rewards, which we call praise, we mostly think praise enhances intrinsic motivation because it enhances feelings of competence. But you can use praise in a way that will, that will undermine intrinsic motivation. You just use it controllingly. Say, you know, I like the way you're taking notes. What a good boy you are. That, will probably, that could undermine intrinsic motivation if it feels like a controlling or an attempt to manipulate you into more of the same behavior. So our issue with rewards is not that rewards are good or bad. It's that when rewards are used to control somebody else's behavior, they will undermine intrinsic motivation. It tells us something about the laws or principles of autonomy. Just to show you a different way of illustrating the undermining effect, this is a study that was led by Ko Muriyama, who's at the University of Reading, and he wanted to look at uh, the undermining effect in an fMRI format. Uh, it's not that easy to do because to find an intrinsically motivated activity that you can do in a magnet, it's not that easy. How many people have been in a magnet before? So it's not that, you know, it's not that fun in there. It's noisy, it's kind of claustrophobic, but uh, he invented a game you could play inside the magnet, which is basically a simple reaction time game with a stopwatch. And in, one, in, the, in session one, when people come in for the fMRI, they, one half of the subjects were told, when you get a, uh, a pretty accurate score in this game, you will get a, a financial reward. So they were getting rewards for their accurate... Uh, uh, trials in that, and the other group was not told anything about rewards at all. And then, uh, so they go through the session here, and you can see in this session one, the people who are getting rewards, this is the, uh, the reward group, they're highly activated in an area of the brain called the bilateral striatum, which is an area of our brain where we're really sensitive to reward effects in the environment. And you can see all that activation here uh, in that group, but I think what's also interesting is people are not getting any external rewards at all are also highly activated in this area, not as much as the ones getting external rewards, but still a lot of activation in this area. So they're interested, and the rewards are internal. What's rewarding to them is the fun of this task. And now, in the second session, people come back in, and this time there's no uh, promise of rewards for anybody. And we see here a very different pattern. It's not just an extinction pattern. If behaviorists were looking at this, they would say, well, that's an extinction pattern. But if that were true, then the red line should drop to right where the blue line is. But what happens is people who previously got rewards are now showing almost no activation in the bilateral striatum. They're not finding the task rewarding at all anymore, even though 
previously people, and, and still people who never got rewards still are. That's the classic undermining effect, I think, nicely shown here. And it shows up, too, here in the, um, the LF, uh, LPFC data. Here's an area uh, in the left prefrontal cortex where we'd expect to really be mapping onto cognitive engagement of a person. And you can see the same pattern of effects here. People previously rewarded in the experiment are really now deactivated from cognitive engagement in this task um, after the uh, reward period. So it's just another way of showing this common phenomenon. Why did we think these things were important? Well, we thought the issues of how people support autonomy would be really important, for instance, in classroom settings where you need intrinsic motivation and interest in what's going on to absorb uh, what's happening. And uh, so just, this is just an old field experiment that we did way long ago when we were first starting these experiments. It was a we had all fourth and fifth and sixth graders in a school district near our uh, city of Rochester. And in the summertime, before any teachers saw any of the kids in their classrooms, we surveyed the teacher about what are your motivational strategies for problems that happen in your classroom. So, you know, Johnny's been listless and uninvolved in class lately. He hasn't done his homework. What would you do to Johnny or with Johnny? And we got their answers, and we classified teachers in terms of whether their answers were controlling, meaning that they would use rewards and punishments to get Johnny to act, or they'd be what we call autonomy supportive, which is they'd try and find out from Johnny's perspective what the barriers were, and they would try and work with Johnny from an individual, his own point of uh, reference as to how they can help with this problem. So we sorted the teachers into those two camps, and we intended in this year to do a longitudinal study, and we couldn't get into the classrooms till five weeks into the school year for administrative issues, and this was the correlations five weeks into the school year between the teacher's own self-reported strategy and then the student's uh, intrinsic motivation. And what you can see is teachers who reported a more autonomy-supported strategy had, uh, higher, had children who uh, were more curious. They were more independent in their work. Uh, they, were, uh, they preferred harder rather than easier problems, whereas if you have a controlling teacher, you want easy problems all the time. And what really struck me as a clinical psychologist who was seeing a lot of kid patients at the time uh, was this phenomenon, which is within five weeks of the school year, teachers had an impact on kids' self-concept. If you were in a controlling classroom, you felt less good about your cognitive ability, and you felt less good about yourself in general vis-a-vis uh, -vis measures of self-esteem. This, uh, of course, there's now been hundreds of studies showing the same kind of effect. I just show one recent one that was led by Yung Shim Yang uh, that was in the Journal of Ed Psych in Korean high schoolers. And again, CET argues that autonomy and competence will be the most proximal factors in intrinsic motivation, and that they'll be enhanced by autonomy-supportive teachers. And of course, this pattern holds up in Korea as it does in the U.S. And again, there's hundreds of such studies on this showing the validity of this particular theory. It works in other domains. I'm just going to give a couple examples here. This is uh, in sport. You think of sport as typically being intrinsically motivated for people. We do it because it's fun. Uh, this is a study that I got to do with Bartho uh, Kimberly Bartholomew, uh, who was at Nottingham University at the time. And uh, what, what she was doing was uh, uh, collecting athletes from around the UK. So these were athletes at all levels, some amateur, some club, some at the more elite levels, and just get, getting them to rate their coaches uh, coaching style, whether it was autonomy, supportive, or controlling. And what she was able to show is that controlling coaching led to the thwarting of all three basic psychological needs. If you had a controlling coach, you felt less related to the coach, you felt less autonomy with respect to your sport, and you felt less competence. And this, in turn, was related to burnout and more negative affect. And the opposite being true of autonomy, supportive coaches. 
with the elite athletes, we were able to do a little extra thing, which is before they went to practice, we were able to give them a mouth swab so that we could do an assay. And what we were particularly interested in here is uh, secretory immunoglobin A. And this is a, a, a protein that you secrete in the mucosa if you're under stress. It's a protective thing. Typically, it would be to help prevent us from getting sick when we know that there's something that's about to assault us. But here, what we see is that the, the controlling coaches who are need thwarting have athletes who are getting a higher level of this in their mucosa just before practice. So as they go into practice, they're already feeling this stress. So this is just a way of showing that indication on that. This was my high school basketball coach right here. No. <laughs> Intrinsic motivation has many applications. I do a lot of work in video games because uh, actually when I first got into this area, uh, one of my former students who was an avid video gamer came to me and he said, you know, you, we've got to look at this because people are spending an enormous amount of hours on video games and they have to be really intrinsically motivating. What a great testing ground for theory. I had never played a video game in my life, really, I don't think, before... Uh, he did that, so I went to try out the, this particular game called World of Warcraft and started to play it. And about two years later, I emerged from my study, uh, <laughs> got briefly addicted to the game. And, uh, you know, I was, uh, whenever my wife would yell upstairs at 3 in the morning, you know, it's, it's 3 in the morning, I would say, I'm doing research, dear. Doing <laughs> but the reason this game is so addictive in some ways, or at least for me, was very compelling is it offers all three psychological need satisfactions. It offers all kinds of competence feedback. You're always leveling up. You're getting granular feedback. You're getting macro feedback. You're always feeling like you're making progress in this game. And they build it so that this is the case. In addition, you can be really connected with other players. You have guilds and relationships, and you help each other. So there's a lot of benevolence and uh, good deeds being done all the time by players for each other. So there's a lot of relatedness in the game. And finally, there's a lot of autonomy in this game. You get to choose the quest that you're on. You get to choose where you go. You can move around any direction you want. You can play the game solo or in groups. I mean, you have so many choices. It's unbelievable. So it satisfies all three basic needs. And we measure these in all kinds of games. I'm just going to give you some results from... Uh, a world of Warcraft, we got players who were just starting the game to rate their need satisfaction in their initial sessions and also how much fun they were having. Uh, and then we followed them for eight months to see who was still playing the game and paying their subscription eight months later. And what you can see here is that the initial correlations of just asking people how much did you enjoy the game, that's not that predictive of eight months later playing, uh, whereas need satisfaction very much is. And, of course, when you let them compete against each other, that just becomes even a little more exaggerated because the enjoyment is accounted for by the need satisfaction in the game itself. So we're really interested in, in these games, also what makes them addictive. We have a, what we call a need density hypothesis where we argue pretty strongly and I think find good support for the idea that the kids who are most prone or vulnerable to addiction to video games are those who are not getting their needs satisfied in the other domains of life. And here you have this beautiful pool of easy need satisfactions. If you grow up in a family or a school where you can have none of those, this becomes a strong gravitational pull. And I think explains a lot of addiction. Intrinsic motivation being important, but as I said before, most of us are spending most of our lives not doing intrinsically motivated things. Like I'm not speaking to you today because I find it enjoyable and fun to speak. I actually find it anxiety provoking and very nerve wracking and um, I try and do my best at these things, but I can't wait till it's over. <laughs> Probably you can't either. <laughs> but anyway, uh, you know, it's not intrinsically motivated. We do most things because they're instrumental, because we have a reason that we would like to accomplish. In this case, I, you know, I want to communicate SDT uh, to this audience, and so that would be my instrumental reason for doing it. I think it's a value to do so. 
So I'm doing it out of value. But I also could do it because um, I was paid some nominal sum of money to come here. <laughs> that could be a reason for doing it, or because I really wanted to see Columbia in the fall. Uh, <laughs> these could be reasons for it. So a lot of what we do in life is extrinsically motivated, but our theory says that there's a lot of different kinds of extrinsic motivation. What that instrumental pull is matters in terms of what. And we think of it in terms of a continuum of autonomy. So before I was talking about when somebody else holds a reward or a punishment and they're controlling you with the reward and punishment, we call that external regulation. And it's a classic form of external regulation. It can be very powerful. If I have a powerful enough reward or a big enough threat, you can get people to do pretty much anything. The problem is not its power, it's its maintenance and transfer. And this is what all clinicians know, which is even if you powerfully control somebody's behavior with reinforcement contingencies, it won't last if the reinforcement contingencies stop. So it's a weak form of motivation in the sense of it's not reliable and it's not continuous because, as we argue, it's not internalized yet to the person. So somewhat more autonomous, we think of this as, again, a continuum of autonomy. This is very externally regulated. Now, interjection is when we do something because we would feel guilty if we didn't do it or we feel more self-esteem when we do. A lot of our behavior is driven by guilt. The, The kid who needs to get A's in school because otherwise they'll feel shamed or guilty, this is interjection. The person who's driven to have a long CV or you know, get uh, distinguished lectures at Missouri, uh, could be doing it for self-aggrandizement and pride. This is equally interjected in our model. So whenever self-esteem contingencies are the basis for you doing it, uh, that we call this interjection. Again, very powerful form of motivation. Its problem is that it's unstable. So people who are operating out of interjection, when failure happens to them, they, they're at risk for losing all their motivation uh, or when success happens and they've already gotten enough approval on that that they cease and desist at the activity. So it's not, again, a stable form of maintaining motivation over time. Uh, included in this would be doing it because your therapist would approve of you. We know this to be an unstable form of motivation because when therapy stops, so does the behavior. So still further on this continuum of extrinsic motivation, we have a thing called identification. And this is when I'm now doing the activity because I identify with the value of this activity or see its worth on a conscious level. So for instance, I might collect money for a cause uh, that I'm in favor of in my neighborhood. And it's not intrinsically motivating to ask for money from your neighbors. It's not fun. It's not interesting. But if I value it, I could do it autonomously, relatively autonomously, because I consciously value the worth of this activity. And we say even still further, the most autonomous form of extrinsic motivation, equally autonomous to intrinsic motivation, is what we call integration. And this is when your values fit with all your other values, so you're wholeheartedly behind what you're doing. All of these are extrinsically motivated, but there's a continuum here that goes from very heteronymous all the way up to um, autonomous. And this makes a great deal of difference in the quality of behavior that will follow and in people's well-being. And I'll just show you this... uh, first study, and I show this in part because of our discussion here of uh, cross-cultural things. This was a study done in 1988 by Yamauchi and Tanaka, and they did their own indigenous measures of our constructs within Japanese elementary schools. And what they showed here is uh, what we find routinely, which is we call a quasi-simplex pattern that shows us that this is indeed a continuum. Uh, If this is a continuum, it should be that external is more highly correlated with the thing that's next to it on the scale than the thing that's not next to it on the scale. And if you look at this, um, along the diagonal correlations are high, they move down as you go in. This is what Gutman called a a quasi-simplex, and it it conveys that there is a continuum. 
more important for our purposes is what's the effects of these various kinds of motivation on elementary school children's behavior. And here in Yamauchi and Tanaka's sample, you see that the more uh, autonomous forms of motivation are associated with the more uh, positive outcomes like a learning orientation, uh, a weaker performance orientation, uh, and a negative relationship with work avoidance, a strong relationship with value for school. And in Yamauchi and Tanaka's study, they looked at deep versus superficial processing of material, and they see that deep processing is associated with autonomous motives, superficial processing associated with uh, more controlled motives. Most interesting here, as you see, interjection motivation is really correlated with performance motivation, wanting to do better than the others, which of course makes sense. That's how you're going to get your self-esteem uh, satisfied in that context. Uh, here's a Russian data set that uh, I collected with uh, Valari Chirkov, uh, who's now at University of Saskatchewan. And here, Valari, who was uh, a Russian professor who came to visit us in Rochester, uh, argued with us a lot that Russian culture was more totalitarian, more authoritarian than uh, the Western culture he was seeing. And I didn't disagree or agree with that, but what, because I, I don't know, I didn't know Russian culture that well. Of course, Ken now can tell me what he's been seeing lately. But, uh, but our issue would be not, is it more or less authoritarian, but what are the effects of authoritarianism within Russia, and what are the effects of authoritarianism within the U.S. as a comparison group? And so it's really these relationships that we're most interested in. You can see that they're very similar in both countries. So when parents or teachers are more uh, autonomy supportive, in both countries, the students report uh, less external regulation. Uh, you can see interjected reg regulation not being related to uh, this as it is in most of our samples. But identification with school, valuing school, is positively related to autonomy support from both parents and teachers in both countries. And you notice that intrinsic motivation, however, is only related to the teacher's autonomy support. Why? Because the teacher is the one who's in charge of what's being offered in the classroom, what the materials are, whether they're interesting, whether they're um, optimally challenging or not. So parents can support the value, but teachers have to do the work on intrinsic motivation. Same in both countries. And then the mental health outcomes that we collected in the same study, uh, you see in both countries, the more autonomy supportive parents and teachers are, uh, the higher the mental health uh, outcomes associated with it. In fact, we just, we just finished a 23-country study that was run by Chris Nemec, and this was done in a little different way. We had uh, uh, students in 23 countries around the world write small essays, three five-minute essays for us. The f uh, one essay was about the most motivating teacher you ever had. Another one was about the most demotivating teacher you ever had. And a third essay would be about your current teacher. And we had them write those essays in counterbalanced order in their native languages, and then they were coded for various attributes by raters in each country, so done by people who were uh, indigenous to each country. Uh, these are the countries that we uh, were looking at here. And I'm not going to present the data from all these countries because there's a swarm of data here. Uh, I just want to say the following thing, which is it was so striking how similar descriptions are across the world of what kids see as the motivating classroom. In every country, the most motivating teacher was really high in relatedness compared to the other two conditions and really high in autonomy compared to the other two conditions. And in almost no sample at all, hardly any students ever mentioned things like rigor, grade focus, all the things that we educational reformers talk about. Students aren't thinking about those things. They're thinking about what's the interpersonal connection I have with this teacher? Are they warm and related to me? Are they supporting my choice and making things interesting? Those are the things that students really care about, and that turns out to be universal. Nobody mentioned rewards as a positive factor 
in, at least as a significant factor in any of the samples we looked at. Here's yet another domain uh, where we're looking at extrinsic motivation. And, and for most people, exercise is something they do for extrinsic reasons. They do it for health or fitness or appearance or for whatever reason or because somebody told them they better. Um, so there's all kinds of reasons for performing exercise. This was a study that was, uh, I was at uh, University of Bath in England for uh, a semester, and uh, this was uh, the, my sponsor. There was Martin Standage who led this study. And what uh, Martin did is he asked people, what, what's the reasons that you would exercise or do you do exercise? And then after assessing that, he gave all the participants an act-to-heart device, which you wear um, uh, for a week in this case. And it's a pretty accurate device for me- measuring physical activity, not just how many steps you take, but also what's the intensity of your physical activity because it's getting at heart rate as well. And then he, uh, he analyzed the data in terms of meaningful bouts of activity according to the American College of Sport Medicine and the uh, American Health Association criteria for what constitutes a meaningful bout of activity and correlated that with people's reasons for exercising. And what you can see here is that people who were exercising for external regulation, like my doctor told me to, or uh, my wife told me to, or whatever their external regulation reason, that's not reliably predicting they're actually exercising. Doing it out of interjection that, uh, you know, it's going to make me feel better about myself does not predict reliably that exercise, although it does to some extent. What was really predicting their exercise over that week was identified regulation and intrinsic motivation, the two autonomous forms of motivation. So together, they're pretty predictive of whether people actually exercised over the week. We take this stuff into medicine quite a bit, and I'm just going to give you another simple study here. In the U.S., uh, probably most of you know that uh, prescription medications are given out regularly by physicians, and then they're hardly ever taken in accord with instructions. I think their latest research I saw that was less than 50% of the time, somewhere around 42% of the time, people will actually take their prescriptions as prescribed. They either take them in the wrong amounts, or they cease and desist too soon. There's all kinds of ways in which people don't take medications properly. They feel better, so I'm going to stop now. Uh, These are common things. So we were interested in compliance with medications. And uh, this was a study that was led by Gail Roden at uh, Clark University and Jeff Williams, who's a colleague of mine in Rochester. And this was about 100 patients who had a chronic illness. And they got a prescription for this illness, which was very simple. It was to take some pills once or twice a day. And then we were looking at compliance for this particular prescription thing. And we had people who got the prescription rate, the prescribing physician, in terms of how much autonomy support they experienced during the interview with the physician. And then we asked them, why are you taking the medication using the uh, taxonomy I just showed you? And then, so two days after they got their medications, they didn't know we were going to do this. We called them on the phone. We said, you know, we just wanted to check and see where your medications were at on that. Could you bring them to the phone and pour them out and we'll count them? Um, we counted how many pills they had. And then we did the same thing two weeks into the study, called them and said, you know, we just wanted to check on that amount of medication again. Can you tell us how many pills are left? And we matched that with how many pills should be there at that point of time as one predictor of adherence. And then we had their own self-report of adherence, which was pretty good itself. And you can see here the very strong correlations between more autonomous reasons for taking your medication and actually taking it. In fact, uh, the model of autonomy support healthcare promoting more autonomous motivation and that predicting adherence accounted for more than 50% of the variance in adherence on this very simple uh, medical thing. So when we get to more complex ones, you can imagine how much more important it is. So we we use this in a lot of studies. We've done a lot of uh, randomized controlled trials in the health domain, applying our principles here of autonomy supportive versus controlling healthcare professionals 
are supporting the basic psychological needs of their clients, and that's resulting in better mental health and physical health outcomes. And all of these are areas where there's been a randomized control trial that's already in the literature, um, I think which is the gold standard in this domain for effective intervention. In the workplace, we find the same thing. This is a kind of cool study with Wall Street stockbrokers. Most of us think of them as the most extrinsically motivated people in the world because they're after money. And they may be after money, but some people said that you won't be able to predict things there because they're not going to be motivated in the same way. But it turns out they look like the rest of our workforce. They really care about their need satisfaction in the workplace, and that's higher when their uh, managers are autonomy supportive, and that turns out to translate into better work evaluation and performance. They're making more money for their investment companies, and they're having higher well-being at work when they feel more autonomy relatedness and competence on the job as a result of an autonomy supportive manager. And it's the same, I'm going to skip a couple slides here, that was a Chinese study in Chinese schools where we find kind of the same thing. Because I want to get at the specific point about cultures and autonomy, I want to show you an experiment that we did to directly go at the hypothesis that autonomy doesn't matter, especially in Asian cultures. And this has been a hypothesis that's been put forward by a number of people, but most notably Hazel Marcus and her colleagues have said a number of times that autonomy is not important in Asian cultures. And we dispute this very strongly because we think it's a basic human need. And so one way we wanted to show this is we, we also don't want to disagree that cultural behaviors differ. There are many, many different values and uh, practices in different cultures. So what we did is we took a, the Singalis and uh, the Triandis models of cultural differences and just translated those items from their scales into behaviors. These are sample items from this to measure uh, the extent to which these are the practices in your ambient envi environment. So in multiple nations here, it was uh, Turkey, uh, Korea, uh, U.S., and Russia. We had people rate, how much are these the practices that are in your ambient community or valued in your ambient community? And then we asked them a second question, which is, why do you do these activities? So we could get at their autonomy for their activities. And first, we, we uh, show uh, the Triandis and Singalis models are generally pretty correct uh, because this was a latent model that Turkey didn't show up in this model. Uh, but what you see is that, uh, as they would predict, the U.S. is more uh, individualistic, Korea more uh, collectivistic, Russia somewhere in between, as we'd expect. But our point was the following, which is when we ask people why they engage in the practices that are their culture practices, in all cases, the more autonomous they were for practicing their culture's practice, the better their mental health and well-being. That was independent of the specifics of their cultural practices and the mean differences in them. So it's not, and it wasn't moderated by country or self-construal processes. And we found this result lots of times, which is the effect of autonomy is not moderated by country membership, or when it is, it's extremely mild as an effect size. Um, it, autonomy even affects our non-conscious behavior. And I want to get at this with a, uh, 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 a study that was done by Lisa Legault um, in Canada. She was interested in prejudice, and I know that's been a big topic here on this campus in the last while, and people's ability to control displays of prejudice. So she asked people, why would you inhibit expressions of prejudice toward an outgroup? And she used the self-determination continuum, so some people uh, wouldn't inhibit it. They're amotivated to inhibit their prejudice. They'd express it anyway. Some people would not express prejudice because they don't want to get in trouble. They see that there are punishments in the world for expressing prejudice, so they would withhold it for that reason. Some would feel guilty if they were to express prejudice, so it would be more of an interjection. 
Some people say it's my value. I think it's important value in society not to be expressing prejudice toward outgroups. And for some people, that was a highly integrated form of uh, valuing. And some people even said, I look at a more satisfying, enjoyable culture when we're not hurting each other. And so there was even intrinsic motivation. So she gets this ratings of the reasons why people would express prejudice. And then she gives them a test of prejudice, an explicit test of prejudice, and then an implicit test of prejudice using the implicit association task. And so here, the explicit measure is just really asking people straightforward questions about how prejudiced they are. But the implicit test does it using a reaction time paradigm to get at this in a non-conscious way. And what you see is the more self-determined people are to inhibit prejudice, the more they're also not only able to control explicit prejudice, but also implicit prejudice. And she's gone on to show in other experiments that controlling prejudice, while it can sometimes affect this variable, hardly ever affects positively this variable. So we got interested in this whole issue about prejudice and how it gets internalized and how people act it out. And one of our ideas about the discrepancy between what my explicit uh, expressions would be and what my implicit impressions, uh, impressions or attitudes would be would be that I, I mismatch because there's control in my culture around me that doesn't allow me to express certain values. And the example we could think of uh, to test this in was the example of sexual orientation. If I'm in a society that's very homophobic and says, you know, you can't be gay, then I'm not going to be able to acknowledge my own attraction to same-sex partners, and that's going to create a discrepancy between what I report my sexual orientation is and what it might actually be on a non-conscious level. So this would account for the discrepancy. So we wanted to test this. We have a series of studies that was in JPSP in 2012 where we looked at parental control versus autonomy support and the extent to which it predicted a a discrepancy between your implicit and your explicit uh, attractiveness to same-sex partners, and it does. The more you come from a controlling family, the more more you're likely to report uh, not being uh, attracted to same-sex people, um, and uh, that's discrepant uh, from your implicit attitude. And the more that discrepancy exists, the more homophobic you are. The more you are prejudiced against gay and lesbian people. Now, where does this take place? The interaction that accounts for this is wholly carried by really one group. It's the people who have a strong attraction to same-sex partners but happen to uh, come from a controlling uh, situation. So it's the people who are explicitly straight but implicitly gay, so to speak, who are the ones who are most likely to target with hate other, uh, other people who are gay and lesbian. And we, in, the, in our studies here, we had some measures of uh, aggression or willingness to aggress on gays and lesbians as one of the outcomes. You see that here in this slide. This whole model gets amplified if your parents actually are explicitly homophobic and they're controlling. You have a big discrepancy, and that predicts uh, your greater threat from gay and lesbian people. Now, this is what Freud would have called reaction formation. It's classic reaction formation, and I'm always glad to prove Freud right on something or other. And this is a case where the repression of a certain kind of sexuality leads you to displace in terms of threat to external uh, sources. I know I'm uh, running a little short of time, so I want to get to uh, just the topic of well-being and the importance of autonomy for well-being. Our model says that in contexts where your basic needs are supported, you have higher well-being. And this should be true in all cultures uh, across the world. And it turns out to be true. When we look at need satisfaction across cultures, 
I don't have the univariates ones here, but this was a study with, uh, with Valery Chirkov again. You see in all cultures, need satisfaction strongly predicting even subjective well-being uh, um, across nations. But a stronger test of our theory is not the kind of aggregate correlations. It's on a moment-to-moment level. If your needs are being satisfied, your well-being should go up. And on a moment-to-moment level, when their needs are being frustrated or thwarted, your well-being should go down. And this should be, so therefore, you should be able to measure this at a more microscopic level than just at this aggregate level. And as in this example here, you have person A who happens in general to have higher well-being uh, than person B, but they have a lot of fluctuations in their own well-being. The question is, what explains the difference between uh, day four and day five here in that person? So this within-person question is just really interesting. This is a sample of our undergraduates from the University of Rochester and their, day, their weekly affect. Those of you who are astute statisticians can see a pattern here, which is they have kind of low positive affect Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Somewhere around Friday afternoon, affect seems to go up, and it stays up through Sunday afternoon and starts to go down Sunday evening. And the opposite is true of negative affect. Uh, we don't have any idea why this takes place. <laughs> uh, we call it the weekend effect. It's very strong in undergraduates. And what, what they account for the weekend effect is that... Uh, is, is this, which is if you look at their need satisfactions across the week, competence is pretty level across the whole week, but what happens on the weekends is there's a lot more autonomy and relatedness going on. I don't mean sexual relatedness, I mean relatedness. They're studying with their peers, they're hanging with the people they want to relate to, uh, and, they're also, and they're working too, but they're working at a pace, at a time, in a, in a strategy that they want to work, so they have a lot of autonomy, choice, and relatedness, and that boosts their well-being on the weekend. We then took this to American workers, and uh, we collected a sample, a heterogeneous sample of American workers who were full-time workers, and we wanted to look at the same phenomena for them. And what we found with American workers is just like we found with college students, was on days where they experienced autonomy and relatedness or competence, they had higher positive affect, uh, less negative affect, more vitality and energy for the day and fewer physical symptoms in the case of autonomy and relatedness. Less stomach aches, less headaches, less of the common uh, stress-related uh, symptoms, muscle aches, uh, things like that. And this was accounted for in two ways. One is on the weekends, people felt a lot more well, both physically and mentally. And, of course, they were not at work on the weekends. And when they were at work, they felt a lot worse in terms of those things. And this effect was fully mediated by the work contrast was fully mediated by autonomy and relatedness. So what that means is a lot of our workers don't feel much autonomy in the workplace. They don't feel that connected to their coworkers, and then that costs them in terms of well-being and mental health. Um, and uh, on the other hand, not everybody shows a weekend effect. If you're in a job where you have a lot of autonomy or you feel really connected to your co-workers, your weekend isn't that much different in terms of well-being than your weekday. So we do interventions in workplaces trying to increase the amount of autonomy and relatedness in the workplace because this is good for workers in general. So my last thing here just has to do with what people are pursuing in their lives. And again, I want to get to some universalities in this, but we have different life goals in life. You know, most of us are striving for something. Some people, it's for success. This guy's definitely going somewhere. Uh, (laughs) And for other people, it's doing pro-social things. We have different goals in life. And the question is, which ones of those are really more satisfying and and well-being producing? We argue that all goals are not created equal. Some life goals 
uh, will be very poor at producing need satisfaction, and as a result of that, they won't produce wellness, whereas other ones will be very high in producing need satisfaction, and they should produce greater human wellness. And so uh, this, this hypothesis of ours that goals will differ relates to a uh, philosophical tradition, uh, really an Aristotelian tradition called the eudaimonic tradition, because Aristotle made an empirically testable claim that the things that are going to be most satisfying in life are the things that are virtuous and excellent expressions of our human nature. It's doing the things that are intrinsically valuable, which will make us the most happy, whereas he argued pursuing happiness would make us not so happy. So pursuing other people's things. So he said here that people who are happy are those who've cultivated their character and their mind and kept the acquisition of external goods within moderate limits, but the unhappy ones have managed to acquire more external goods than they can possibly use, and they're lacking the goods of the soul. So I think sometimes we can look at our culture and wonder how much that second thing describes where we're at. Now, not everybody agrees with Aristotle. We have modern philosophers who disagree. Here's one of them. He's written prolifically on the topic, and uh, this has nothing to do with his political views, but he has a strong view that money will make you happy. So he's an opposite to an Aristotelian in this sense. And we get a lot of cultural messages that match that. If we, we could buy and consume our way into happiness and that people are really successful when they have money, possessions, a great image, and all those things. We're always getting those messages. So we have to ask, who's right? <laughs> is it Trump or is it Aristotle? And I can never go by this slide without pointing out that they have the same hairstylist. <laughs> it's remarkable. So uh, one way into this debate was uh, a distinction that was really uh, begun in work by Tim Castor and myself in the mid-90s, where we distinguished between different kinds of life goals or aspirations. Intrinsic goals were ones that we thought would uh, most likely satisfy in a pretty direct way basic psychological needs, and extrinsic ones would be ones that would not do so. And among goals that we picked out, we picked material success, an image, seeking a cool image, or getting social recognition, being popular or famous, as extrinsic goals, because they don't inherently satisfy anything. We do them for other instrumental reasons. We're hoping, for instance, if we make a lot of money, maybe then we will be loved. Um, on the other hand, intrinsic goals were goals to uh, contribute to your community, to establish really high-quality, intimate relationships with other people, or to grow personally and to learn across your lifespan. We call these intrinsic goals. And then we ask people, how important are these goals in your life? How much is this something you aspire for? And then uh, we uh, use those ratings of importance. And what you see here is it tends, to, it tends to, they factor together the things that we call intrinsic. People who are into community tend also to be into affiliation. People who are into money also care about image, etc. And this is what happens with well-being. So this was a sample of 100 urban adults that we uh, went door to door and sampled in the city of Rochester. And people who were putting more emphasis on intrinsic goals in their life had higher vitality, self-actualization, fewer physical symptoms, fewer depressive symptoms, opposite true of people extrinsic. And this has been replicated everywhere. I mean, at first we thought, oh, this is a tough result to replicate, but it's been replicated now in uh, dozens and dozens of countries. Some, I list some of them here. It's been replicated in teenagers and parents and adult workers and retired workers in business schools where people said it shouldn't obtain, but it nonetheless does in schools of education. Uh, Ken did some great work in law schools on these issues. Um, that, so it's a pretty stable finding. We did a longitudinal study, too, of our graduates from the University of Rochester. A year after they got out of college, we uh, assessed their aspirations in life, and we followed the next year whether they attained those aspirations or not. What's interesting is people get what they wish for. People who are after making money tended to make money. People who are trying to give to their communities tended to give to their communities. But these were the well-being results 
uh, that stem from it. If you were into intrinsic aspirations at time one, you were more likely to attain intrinsic aspirations, and this was going to contribute to greater well-being, and negatively uh, to contribute to ill-being. And people who were into extrinsic aspirations very much tended to get their aspirations fulfilled, and nonetheless, this predicted greater ill-being and did not add to their well-being in this longitudinal study. So it just goes to show that even if you achieve your goals, it may not get you the well-being result that you expect from them. I'm going to skip a couple of these things. I just saw Jeannie Twang at uh, UCLA did a great uh, study on this or, um, um, where she was looking at changes in mental health across our college student populations over a 70-year period. And she used the MMPI scores to derive this, and she found a, a, a disturbing trend, which is there's more antisocial, more depressive symptoms, other negative symptoms in our college populations at greater rates today than ever before. And they tried to, all kinds of analyses to account for this linear, this t- temporal trend over time. They looked at religious changes, at changes in family structure, at economic issues that went on over time, and none of those accounted for this pattern. But they did have some value questions in there, and this is what they concluded, which is the pattern of change best predicts a cultural model uh, toward extrinsic rather than intrinsic goals that may have negatively impacted youth mental health. Over time, American cultures increasingly shifted to an environment where more and more young people experience poor mental health and psychopathology, possibly due to an increased focus on money, appearance, and status rather than community and close relationships. So that was not our data. That was data from their uh, data sets, which just concur with our general hypothesis. I say this thing because consumerism is an American value in some ways, but it's also now becoming a universal value in some ways. And we argue that universally it's going to have the same effect, which is universally the tendency to be consumeristic and materialistic interferes with the satisfactions of autonomy and relatedness and therefore decreases people's well-being rather than adding to it, even though they expect it will increase their well-being. People go shopping with the idea that it will make them happier. And what we show is it gives you a slight rise in negative affect and particularly if you're a materialist. So interesting data on this. So my conclusion is, you know, when it comes to happiness, at least in this debate, Aristotle is the winner uh, over Trump in this because I think his position has more empirical data supporting it. And in general, I just want to say that, you know, motivation today has really switched its focus. We, we've stopped thinking so much about how to control people from the outside and instead trying to think, how can we support and facilitate motivation from within And we argue the conditions under which that happens are the ones that are meeting basic psychological need uh, supports, and that our data holds up across ages, domains of activity, and cultures, and that focusing on intrinsic goals is more need-satisfying. Thank you very much. So, Jamie, I know you have to go. He hates this talk. He's leaving for that. <laughs> um, so I, I was hoping we would leave. Yeah, great time for questions. Yes. So as a parent of teenagers, you've given me a lot to think about. I'm sorry. I'm very sorry. <laughs> My question was about compliant you know, adherence in a healthcare setting. And you, I, I seem to remember that you measured autonomy um, support Sure. And we we also do ratings of uh, medical interviews and health interventions from the outside, so you can get this both ways, either perceptions or at that. So I'm going to tell you more about the ratings we use to look at it, 
because I think that's probably more informative. But the first thing we would look at is, does the practitioner in any way try and understand the other person's perspective? Do they at any time try and apprise themselves of what the other person might think about their illness or the intervention itself? So without taking the internal frame of reference, you can't support somebody's autonomy. Do they provide choice where possible? Do they empathize at all with the situation uh, that a person might feel barriers or confront barriers in the taking of these things? And then, um, so, you know, the, the main things are, do they take their perspective and then they do offer choices uh, to them? Yeah. All mammals exhibit play, and it's in this process uh, the young acquire skills that will be instrumental later in life. Yeah. Um, do you think that there are any examples of behaviors that have intrinsic or intrinsically motivated that could not be accounted for as um, an extrapolation of a mammalian um, play instrument? Yeah, I want to say a couple things about that. First, uh, as far as I know, the only animals that are, have been shown to play a lot outside of mammals are birds. Birds also have... So those are the, those are the species that play. Uh, and they do play these instrumental roles that you say in terms of developing future skills, the rough and tumble play, for instance, building coordination, capacity for defense, all kinds of things. One of the things is it's really important, I think, to psychology today, in especially evolutionary psychology applied to our work, is the separating proximate from ultimate goals of behaviors. So... It's the ultimate goal of play behavior from, a, from an evolutionary perspective to increase our adaptive uh, capacities. So one of the reasons that play functions for us and probably sticks in our behavior is because ultimately people who play uh, are more able to survive. But that has nothing to do with the proximate reason for play, which could be immediately in the enjoyment of activity. In fact, it would make more evolutionary sense if we built in proximal mechanisms that supported behavior rather than relying on instrumental mechanisms. And I'm going to give you just a prime example of that. People are intrinsically motivated to help other people. This is true from infancy all the way through adulthood. And the reason we usually help is not because we think we're going to get something back from other people or that's good for our group or that's going to help us survive more. We do it because we find enjoyment in the doing of it. We feel satisfaction of autonomy. We feel satisfaction of competence. And we feel satisfaction of relatedness. And that proximal set of motives explains altruistic behavior. But altruism behavior also serves an instrumental function in evolutionary time which is its ultimate goal. So psychologists are notorious for confusing ultimate and proximal goals. They're looking for ultimate goals to be expressed in proximate motivations where they should not be from an evolutionary perspective. So we feel very strong. I just wrote a paper with Patty Hawley on uh, altruism, uh, need satisfaction, and evolutionary perspectives that just makes this argument itself that uh, things like play, things like helping other people, we do for their intrinsic satisfactions. And it's lucky that those are built into us because those have adaptive advantage. So it sounds like you would be okay with saying that examples of intrinsically motivated behaviors um, have an ultimate explanation yeah. that lies in play. Yeah, in selective advantage that play conveys. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, thinking about it, it seems to me that the relationship between reward and intrinsic motivation, it doesn't seem like it ought to be as consistent as you sort of portrayed. Uh-huh. For example, suppose that I get a job doing something that I love. I get a salary for that job. Mm-hmm. So that's a reward for doing it. 
Yeah, so salary is what we call a, a task non-contingent reward, and we find that it's got, at best, mild undermining effects relative to, say, a contingent reward where your boss says, if you do these things, then I'll give you this bonus. So even in the workplace, the type of reward strategy that's being used will have an impact on your relative autonomy. That doesn't mean, of course, that if they suddenly someone took all of our salaries away, we would show up for work. We probably wouldn't do that because we do have instrumental motivation to gain salaries, and there's nothing, again, wrong with that, but that's not intrinsically motivated. And what's interesting is if we did not show up at work the next day because our salary was withdrawn, it would show that it was not because of intrinsic motivation. In fact, it would be the classic undermining or at least an extinction effect. So um, you would, I think we would find that most people would not show up for work the next day because their jobs are not intrinsically satisfying, but you know, we faculty would be right at our desks. Because <laughs> so, we can't, we can't help ourselves. <laughs> yeah. So this brings up to me um, the question of self-discipline um, and learning self-discipline. So often we think of it, um, and we're told that it's something that is imposed, and we as parents, it's very important to instill self-discipline. But then that bears that extrinsic element, right? So how much of self-discipline comes from intrinsic reward and, and how much, you know, how much is it a natural development? And, and well, you know, self, self-discipline is when I would do things that might not be enjoyable, but I think are going to be good in the long run towards some goal that I have. And so the discipline people might show could be the discipline because they're afraid of their coach, for instance, so they, they exercise or they're afraid of their boss, so they do more work at home, which would, be, would not be autonomous at all. But you c- could be very highly self-disciplined if you strongly value competency in that sphere and you're willing to put in the work to get it. So here you're not necessarily having fun or enjoyment. It's not intrinsically motivated. You're instrumentally focused, but we would call it identified or integrated motivation would be underlying that self-discipline. So it would be autonomous, extrinsic motivation that would power self-discipline. And what we actually find is that the best performance in schools, the best performance in sports, are not people who are just intrinsically motivated, but they're people who have high intrinsic motivation and high identification. Because if you don't have the value for the activity or the domain, you're not going to persist over the not fun things. You need that discipline, but you have to have a value in order to carry that out over time. So I think self-discipline is a really interesting problem to be studying. It's a great question, uh, but you know, I would argue that most things that we would call self-discipline come out of, that persist over time, come out of autonomous extrinsic motivation, a real value for building the skills and doing the work it takes to get there. Not necessarily. It could be, and if it were imposed, then it would probably have a shorter half-life and be less quality in the moment and less enjoyable in the moment, too. You get two questions, okay. <laughs> it just occurs to me thinking about it that the concept of autonomy has had substantial overlap with the concept of freedom. Mm. So we make a strong distinction between these things theoretically again. So freedom for us is the absence of constraints. But absence of constraints does not necessarily lead to any autonomy at all. It may lead me to feel lost. So you suddenly free me up, or you tell a kid, oh, do anything you want. 
but they may not know what to do. They may not know where to go. They may not have a, a clue about what that is. So, some, so we, we actually think in most circumstances the ideal is not freedom, but it's autonomy support with structure. You provide people a structure, a sense of how to, how, what's going on in this context, and then support their autonomy for choosing their own way. And this is highly motivating. Leaving people without constraints might not motivate them at all. Um, and this is an important distinction, too, even in parenting. You know, you could say, well, kids who have permissive parents have a lot of freedom because the parents don't constrain them at all, but they also aren't getting any autonomy support. And the, the developmental outcomes for permissive parenting are not, not pretty, um, whereas the developmental outcomes for autonomy supportive parenting are very, very positive. And so I, we would make a strong distinction between freedom and autonomy in this way. Yeah. Now, in, in fact, most people have all of these, most multiple motivations going at the same time. You know, I gave the example of my giving this lecture here before, and I, I said I did it out of identification. I also do it out of interjection. I think I should. You know, I feel guilty if I don't do these things. Uh, if I were sitting home at home all the time, not not working, I also have a little bit of fun in it, uh, <laughs> and so you know, so I have some intrinsic motivation, kind of low. I have a high degree of identification. I have a high degree of interjection, uh, and you know, given the paycheck, it's not much external regulation going on here. So, <laughs> just a joke. But uh, all right, I have a little bit of fun in these things. <laughs> But anyway, you know, we have multiple motivations going on. So what we try and do is we look at the relative weighting of that. We try and say, well, relatively speaking, how autonomous is this person's overall motivation versus how controlled is it? And we use that as our predictive variable most of the time. Now, the reason we separate out these different types is because they each have their own special characteristics and dynamics to them. Uh, but overall, we want to understand the relative autonomy of someone versus uh, the relative control that they're experiencing and use that as the predictive. So there is... Uh, overall motivation, uh, which is the conglomeration of these multiple motives that are simultaneously activated within us. But conceptually, you're just, that's just not something you're as interested in as the subcomponents. Uh, so, well, now, we use both scores. Uh, so we have a thing that we call the relative autonomy index, which is the additive variable of this. And um, you know, we use it a lot. Um, it has some psychometric issues with it that we're still struggling with because it's very hard to model. Uh, this and you, you would think it's not difficult, but it is hard to model when you add up these variables. You sometimes are multiplying error variances as well as other things. But uh, you know, nonetheless, the general trend is when you look at the autonomy versus control of people's behavior, it's highly predictive. So yeah, we add them up, and that's the general. That's most of our studies are done with the added up thing, not with the uni- not with the specific subtypes. But I put them here because I was wanted you to see them all. But, you know, so typically in a workplace, we'd look at the person's overall autonomous motivation and their overall control motivation and use those as predictors. Oh, you mean independent. Independently, yeah. Because yeah, each has some predictive value. Yeah. Yeah. You were um, talking about the importance of choice in uh, being autonomy supported. And I'm thinking about that some of the recent research showing that we have a lot of choice, mm-hmm. that they actually end up feeling less satisfied. Mm-hmm. And So I want to make uh, some more distinctions. I mean, choice is a word that, you know, there's lots of choices that we have. And we can also think about choices as decisions that we have to make. 
So if you load me up with a lot of decisions to make, that may not increase my sense of autonomy, but it may increase my cognitive load. You know, so if I go into the grocery store and there's 35 different kinds of toilet paper and I'm trying to figure out which one to buy, this is, this is not like choice in the sense of, gee, I'm autonomously going to get the right product here. It's more like cognitive load. It's a problem to sort through the, the various alternatives that are available for me to make a decision. So I would want, so the studies that show um, that people are not satisfied with choice are usually ones where they load them up with lots of alternatives that are not particularly meaningful alternatives. Choice is about, there's a meaningful set of alternatives here, the choosing one of which is going to better fit with my values and my interests. That's true choice. Uh, to have a bunch of decisions that don't bear on my values or interests is not true choice at all. It's just a cognitive load, and that's what those experiments show. I also would go further that even in one of the most famous ones of those experiments, the Inger experiment, where there was all the chocolates, if you read the details of the article, people actually did enjoy the uh, choice period more than they enjoyed the fewer choice period. They liked trying all the chocolates. They just didn't want to buy any afterwards. <laughs> and that's a whole different issue. Um, so, but mainly I would separate cognitive load from meaningful choice, where choice means that I'm getting some alternatives that might better match my interests or values. That's, that's true choice. You know, we have decisions all the time. I can say to my children, uh, or, you know, either shovel the driveway or stay in your room for the evening. That's not a choice. There's no autonomy in that choice. <laughs> and so you know, we have to think about what we're doing with choice. And for us, choices are facilitators of autonomy only if they're meaningful. Well, thank you very much. You probably already shop at Amazon. If you'd like to kick back a small commission from every purchase you make at no extra cost to you, please use and bookmark my special link at AmazonEVC.com. That's AmazonEVC.com. Will you do me a big favor? Will you rate and review this podcast wherever you're listening from? That really helps. And one more thing. Please share the podcast with your friends. 